This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. All right, you guys, be seated. Um, you may not have known to bring a Bible with you today, and you're going to be able to follow the teaching without a Bible, but I want to encourage you from here on out, bring your Bible with you as we open up God's Word, and then you can see what's happening in the text I'm working on. You'll also be able to see what's happening in the text prior and sometimes after. Uh, we had the scripture uh, for today, the preaching text for today, read by Deacon Val. We'll be working in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. All right. Have you ever had an experience like this? You wrote a paper, you're a student, and that paper, when you finished it at 2 in the morning before you turned it in at your 8 o'clock in the morning class, you would have judged it good to maybe excellent. You felt good about it. It all came together and it was flowing as you wrote. And then the paper was returned to you by your professor who happens to have a certain expertise in the topic upon which you were writing. And they let you know that actually it was average to below average. And it's a bit shocking. You thought it was good. And they who get to say what they think thought it was not very good. You thought you delivered a, pre, a comprehensive presentation before a certain team within your workplace. You've been asked to do it. You thought of all the questions that might be asked. You tried to answer all those questions. You thought you'd hit your points clearly. And then in the Q&A after the presentation, it's actually becoming very clear that there are many things that the people you were presenting to wanted to answer that you didn't address. And you begin to feel while you're having this Q&A back and forth, like you would like for the floor around you to begin to slowly go down so that you were no longer in the room whatsoever. You had an illusion your presentation was comprehensive, but you're finding the fact is it didn't cover things very well at all. You're an athlete. You thought you would have a great match, a great game, a great meet. But you actually in that game, meet or match, performed in a very mediocre way. Maybe you're not as good as you thought you were. Maybe you're not as conditioned as you thought you were. You thought your health was excellent. You've said to yourself, there's lots of things I don't do well in my life. I do my health really well. And then you get a diagnosis. One illusion after another in our lives are often shattered. Here's one of the great illusion moments of my life. I was a sophomore at Wheaton College, a college just a few minutes east of here. It was a thing then, I think it's still quite a thing now, where we had class films. And the class would make their own film, and then they would come this night. There was a huge night on campus back in the day. It would be shown in Pierce Chapel. People would just be packed into the chapel to see the freshman film, sophomore film, junior film, senior film, and then there'd be votes on the best film. I had a small cameo in the freshman film, but in the sophomore film, I graduated to be invited into the group that was actually making the film, and I was actually given the lead in the sophomore class film. Not only was that exciting to me, but the topic we were working on, as, as, as I looked at the script and I was part of putting that together, it was multi-layered. It was subtle, yet forceful. It kind of brought a message or a word that I, as a 19-year-old, felt sure that evangelicalism, which is part of Wheaton College, needed to hear. We took a figure, a seminal figure, a man named Jim Elliott, who's known within the annals of, 
of missionary history, and we, we kind of did an interesting riff on Jim Elliott, and I actually played his twisted twin brother. And honestly, I thought, this, this is a piece of art. Not only am I proud of what I've made, I also thought, this is the moment, middle of my sophomore year, that will now propel me into the group of cool kids that I publicly scorned, but privately aspired to. This is it. I mean, I thought what I was going to wear to the event. I imagined the film starting. I had my anticipation ready to go. And indeed, the freshman film happened. Of course, it was silly. It was 18-year-olds. What do they know? <laughs> and they came the one for the sophomore film. It was second. The credits rolled, the opening credits rolled. There was my name starring Stuart Ruck III. Five minutes into the film, without an exaggeration, people began to boo. I thought, oh, maybe this is the reaction that we needed. Maybe this is what was supposed to happen. We're hitting the target. This is brilliant. They're going to take it all in. They're going to absorb it. But the booing didn't slow down. It actually got louder and louder. As the film rolled, the, boo the, the booing increased to the point that 10 minutes in, you couldn't hear the dialogue in the film. People were yelling so loudly. The organizers of the event made a quick decision and shut the film down. And everyone applauded and got on their feet and clapped that the film was over. They moved on quickly to the junior class film. And certainly the organizers thought that was just a bad moment. Everyone will forget. But I didn't forget. I was crushed. I was so humiliated I actually got so ill, I had to be hospitalized. Because my illusion was so pronounced and so developed of what I had done and what I created and who I was. And on a screen, for all of my peers to see, on a screen was projected the reality, which was, it was a bad film. I've watched it since. And it was shameful in its cynicism and anger. And my peers rightly denounced it. But I was shocked. I'd lived under this illusion for months. Our series right now is Encountering Jesus. And when you encounter Jesus, one of the things he wants to do in his relationship with you is to shatter your illusions. Because he would like to be very close to you. But to get there, he must project on a screen so that you can see it clearly just how desperately sinful we are and just how incredibly weak we are. I hope that today the Lord will meet you in this service as you're gathered here or as you're tracking with us live stream. I hope that today you'll have an illusion about yourself shattered so that Jesus can take that place. We have a heroine in Luke 7, the disciple who loved much 
referred to as the sinful woman in the beginning and the disciple who loved much, she who loved much at the end. And our heroine is a free person. To live by faith, which is what it said about her at the end of the passage, is to live in freedom. Our anti-hero, indeed our protagonist that many of us rightly identify with, is Simon the Pharisee. He's named. The loving disciple is not named as if to create space for us all to come alongside her. Simon the Pharisee is not a free person. He's a fettered prisoner. Our heroine lives out this teaching from Jesus that he gave just a chapter before this recorded in Luke and also recorded in Matthew chapter 5. Indeed, this story is a living out parable, a true parable of this teaching from Jesus, which is at the heart of the good news of God in Jesus, which is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. To be poor in spirit is to confront our illusions about our power or our competency or our attractiveness. And to be poor in spirit is to cry at the feet of Jesus. We can become poor in spirit. We can learn the discipline of living lives that are lives of spiritual poverty insofar as lives that live in the poverty of spirit that is to say we must have God. We must have the infilling of Jesus and his Holy Spirit. So we confront our illusions, verses 39 to 47, if you're taking notes. We cry on the feet of Jesus. Can okay, we read that this Pharisee invites Jesus into his home? Pharisee, for those of you who aren't familiar with that word, he's an incredible theological, philosophical thinker. He's an expert in the scriptures. He's an expert in the law. He's also very likely a strong leader. The way you got in a Pharisee was actually an unusual combination where you got both intellectual and leadership gift combined, which created a really sort of charismatic connection. And, and people listened to the Pharisees. They were imbued with incredible authority. And this Pharisee is aware of a rabbi teacher who's gathering a school around him, Jesus of Nazareth, and he invites this rabbi teacher into his home. We don't know at the beginning of the story why he's invited him into his home. He's showing classic Hebraic hospitality, for sure, it would seem. What we see is actually what's happening here is that Simon the Pharisee is caught up in an immense illusion. As we confront our illusions, we can learn through Simon's illusion. What's the illusion? The first illusion that we have to confront, if we're to be close to Jesus, is the illusion that we are sinners that don't need to be saved. I don't think it's radical for somebody, whether a follower of Jesus or not, and I assume that maybe some here and certainly some that are watching who aren't yet followers of Jesus, it's not radical for a non-follower of Jesus to say, yeah, there's sin in the world. That, that doesn't surprise me when a non-follower of Jesus says that. Or, yeah, I, I'm willing to assent to the fact that I, I may even be a sinner. I'm not perfect, in other words. And certainly for those of us gathered in a church, we're going to say that we're sinners. And certainly Simon the Pharisee, who knew the law, would have absolutely have said, oh, I'm a sinner. The question is not, do we have the illusion of being sinners? The question is, do we have the illusion that we are sinners who don't need to be saved? Indeed, how is it that Simon interacts with Jesus? They're on speaking terms. He, he's invited into his home. He's speaking with them in his home. 
But we see compared to the sinful woman, Simon's on speaking terms, but he is not as the sinful woman is, if you will, on shrinking terms with Jesus. Jesus doesn't walk into his house and Simon, like the sinful woman, gets down on his hands and knees. I cannot believe, Rabbi, that you're here. You teach like one who has authority, like no one has ever taught before. Indeed, Simon engages him in a kind of peer-like relationship. Indeed, Simon doesn't even fully engage him in a peer-like relationship. How does Simon treat him? Simon, in a kind of passive-aggressive masterpiece, doesn't do what he would do for any other guest within his Hebrew customs. He doesn't wash his feet. He doesn't provide a kind of just hospitality to him. Indeed, he's saying, I'm not providing that. Come into my home, but I'm not providing that. He's not acting like somebody who needs to be saved. He doesn't say when someone has to be rescued. I mean, can't you relate to that? It's not that we reject Jesus outright. It's just that we don't wipe his feet with our hair. It's that we don't live in relationship with him when we go into a party already planned because we have to see him. And we break $10,000 worth of ointment upon his feet because we've got to be saved. That sinful woman was a free woman. She knew she had to be saved. Indeed, if we're honest, like Simon, in some ways we may treat our friends better than we treat Jesus. We may be more affirming of our friendships than we are in what we say to our Lord Jesus. We see our sin as a problem. Our sin is a shortcoming, and it needs treatment. But that's not how the sinful woman responds to her sin, is it? She needs way more than treatment. Indeed, we often, like Simon here, relate to our sinful nature like a puppy that needs some discipline as opposed to a feral pit dog that could bite your face. We have an Anglican, Anglican's our tradition, catechism. A catechism is simply a, a, a book of teachings that asks questions about what it means to follow Jesus. And in our Anglican Catechism, a phenomenal resource to, to learn the way of Jesus, I highly recommend it, is the question, how does sin affect you? And the answer in the Catechism is, sin alienates, it estranges me from God, okay, my neighbor, yeah, God's good creation, yes, and myself, the Catechism says. Sin alienates me from my own self which means I'm able to live under an illusion of who I think I am or how I think others perceive me, but I'm alienated from even what that is. And as the Apostle John says in 1 John, I deceive myself. That the nature of sin is self-deception. It's an illusory life whereby I think it's going much better than it really is until my spouse says, this marriage is dying. And you thought the marriage was fine. Your boss says, I have to let you go. And you thought that the average performance review was simply that. Apart from Christ, the catechism continues, 
I am hopeless, guilty, lost, helpless, and walking in the way of death. The illusion that we don't need to be saved can also be fed by a kind of superiority that we also see in Simon the Pharisee. The sinful woman comes in, her hair is down, which would be very unusual for a, a Hebrew woman. She'd have her hair up. You still see this in, in many customs throughout the world in different cultures. Her hair is down. It's obvious that she's known as a sinful woman. Simon says to himself, does he not know? Does this rabbi not know? He's not, she's sinful. He must not be a prophet. He, in other words, he's got a following. He's pretty impressive in some ways, but the guy can't even figure out there's a sinful woman, to which, of course, Jesus prophesies and hears his thoughts, which he hasn't spoken out loud. He said them to himself, and he then speaks to Simon. But don't we often live like Simon in a kind of superiority? You say, well, no, Stuart, never. I mean, I would never think I'm superior to Jesus. That's madness. Okay. Do you ever think you're superior to all of his words? I mean, do you ever read something in the Bible and think, oh, that, that part of the Bible, oh, oh yeah. Well, I mean, that, that part, you know, that's just a culturally bound part of the Bible. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I've read enough smart people who talked about that part of the Bible to know that I don't have to live under that part of the Bible. <laughs> oh, really? Isn't that a superiority? Or how about how you relate to his body, the church? Now, I'm not speaking here of sinful people within the church who have probably truly possibly hurt you or sinned against you. I'm not speaking of that. But when the church hasn't sinned, I should say more clearly, when the people of God within the church who make up the church haven't sinned, but instead it's just, I don't know, a church's website. It's not very good. How the church handles a certain pressing cultural issue. Oh, that's... They should know way better. Do you ever kind of see yourself as superior to the church or to God's words as opposed to your destiny to be saved by Jesus under the word of God, under the authority of his body? You ever embarrassed by the word of God? Offended? by his church when she's truly being his church, but you're still offended. She comes in, verse 38. She stands behind him at his feet. So his head would be at a table. It's a reclining culture. And then his, his head's at the table, and he's, he's kind of reclining. It's unusual for how we would eat, and his feet are down here. So everyone's kind of here at the table, and his feet are down here. She stands behind him at his feet, Weeping. So there's all these key leadership class thought leader people here. And she's just weeping. Nobody else in that room is weeping. And then she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. And then she kisses his feet. And then she anoints them 
one of the things we have to confront in our illusions as well is the illusion of some kind of solo, self-generated strength. This may not be a reality of our sin nature. In other words, what I want to say is there's the sin nature that we must confront the illusions around, but there's also just weaknesses in our lives. There's, there's poverty that comes into our life that may not be of our own sinful making. It's being part of a larger sinful ecosystem system called the cosmos of the world for sure, but we haven't personally sinned. We don't know her story. We don't know how she got into prostitution. We know that she's a sinner and that she needs to be forgiven of many sins. So we know that she has sinned. But we don't know, for example, if, as was the case sometimes, a parent would sell a daughter into prostitution. It still happens in parts of the world because the family is so destitute. We don't know if, because she had no other options as a woman without a husband or a father, if this is the work that she found. We don't know. We don't, we don't know. We do know that earlier on in this book, in this chapter, we have a widow whose son has died, and that's not her fault, that she didn't sin. We know that we have a centurion whose servant is dying. That wasn't the servant's fault or the centurion's fault. They didn't sin, but they're in poverty of spirit. They, they can't change anything. Poverty of spirit is things that have happened out of your control that are circumstantial. So sometimes we have an illusion just around our own ability to be strong. We actually think ourselves so physically fit that when a diagnosis comes that alters the next year or next five years or alters your life or is going to end your life, we can't believe it. It's so unfair. Or a job circumstance happens or a financial situation happens. It wasn't your fault. You didn't do something wrong. You lost that job. That relationship that you were close and a part of is now estranged. And it wasn't necessarily your fault, but it happens all the time. There's all these life circumstances that bring us to a deep poverty of spirit. These are our poverties. These show we're just one email away. We're one phone call away. We're one text away from utter awareness of our poverty of spirit. That's how fragile it all is. It's supposed to be that fragile at one level so that Jesus can say, see how fragile you are? Aren't you aware that you're just an eggshell? Don't you know it? She knew it. She was free. She had no illusion about her own strength. She wasn't in her place of self-strength, inviting the rabbi into her home, and then I'll decide how I'm going to treat him and actually show him a few things by withholding some social convention. So if you want to get there, you want to have this illusion, you want an opportunity to kind of see what's on the screen as I did for real, ask Jesus to personally confront you. Just ask him. Look what he did for Simon. He loved Simon so much he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon, to his credit, says, say it, Rabbi. Say, Jesus, would you personally confront me? As I'm reading my Bible with your words, or would you send somebody that is trustworthy and that I can trust that would actually confront me in an illusion that I have? Would, would you do that for me? Ask him. You can have that kind of relationship with Jesus. A circumstance that may I just watch happen and I actually receive a confrontation to that circumstance. 
Because then it'll move you, if you get there, and you can see that on the screen, it'll move you to cry at the feet of Jesus. Look at this woman. She has such profound attachment to Jesus, she can be properly detached from others. It's an incredible gift of the poverty of spirit. She's so attached to Jesus. She so wants to be at his feet. She so wants to have her, her hair there, her, her, her tears there. She's so just, I have to see this man. Behold, she walks through the door. I have to see this man. I have to be close to him. She's so attached to him. She is actually free to be detached from others from whom she should be free to be detached from. She's not thinking about what Simon thinks. Does she care at all? Imagine, I did this with myself as I read this passage. I imagine myself as a younger up-and-coming Pharisee, and I get invited by Simon to this feast where this rabbi is going to be coming. And I imagine how much I would want to impress the, the Pharisee and be looking for an opportunity to get even one sentence in where Simon would say, wow, he's smart. And into my debut comes this woman. And now I'm all confused because she's attaching to Jesus, who's the guest rabbi, but Simon's not doing anything about this woman. He, he actually seems like he's shut down. And what do I do as a young Pharisee? I just imagine myself kind of, ha, huh, and like, I'm attached to everyone. They're like, like, should I be like the woman? Like, maybe I should do what she's doing. That seems to make the rabbi happy, but Simon's not happy. Like, right? Don't you live your lives that way? Like, who am I supposed to be attached to now? Who am I supposed to be impressing now? Who am I supposed to be somehow getting in with now? Amen. But she's detached from that. She doesn't care, you guys. Why? Because she needs to get saved. She needs to be rescued from a pit of hell that was her life, that is our lives in sin without Jesus. You want to, here's what he wants to project on your screen. Yes, he wants to show you and break your illusion. But just, just for a time, what he wants to show you is him. This is the screen of your life right here. It's the resurrected Jesus looking upon you with utter love and mercy. Yes, I will shatter you illusions, but I would never leave you there. That would maim you for life. That would crush you. I shatter your illusions that you could come close to my feet, that you could cry at my feet. You could be so attached to me, you can detach from others where you need to. Indeed, you can view your poverty. That might be material poverty. That might be this poverty of the spirit that I'm talking about. You can view your poverty not as a shame, not as a horror, but as a door. Behold, the Bible says, verse 37, she came in the door of her poverty. That's how she got close to Jesus. Isn't that a relief? I mean, isn't that amazing? You're very, very sinful. And beyond that, you're very, very fragile. And your sinful nature went when repented of, and your fragility, they're all doors. They, they, they all just get you to Jesus. They all, they all just get you to shrink down and to be yes on speaking terms, but shrinking terms right there with Jesus. You have so many doors. <laughs> don't, don't let the devil make you ashamed of your poverty. Say back to him, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, Satan. I rebuke you. Amen. In the name of Jesus, who died on the cross for my sins and my weaknesses. Hallelujah. You guys, I, I've had a, a four-month early Lent. The Holy Spirit started me on Lent early in Late May, 
It's related to this pandemic and the misery of not being with you and other miseries and other things that are happening in our country. It's, it's very hard. And it's just been internal for me as well. I've been on in Lent. And I've been dealing with, 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 with new levels of the reality of my sin nature that is very sobering and makes up some very hard days. I'm facing stuff I don't want to face. I mean, for crying out loud, here's a new sin I'm facing in a whole new way. I'm so vain, which is pathetic. I'm 53 years old and I'm still vain? You can laugh. I mean, that's pathetic. It is. I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. It's true. If you can see my prayer journal, lots of repenting there. (sighs) But it's a door. Oh, that's a door when I repent. So how do you get through the door? Ask Jesus to forgive your sins. Who is this who even forgives sins? He's Jesus, crucified and resurrected. Ask him to forgive your sins. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.